Merry Christmas, everybody, and happy holidays. Welcome back to Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, I will be discussing with my friend Ian the new Disney Plus documentary, Get Back, a really fascinating document about the making of the Let It Be recording sessions back in 1969. Briefly, if you are a Beatles fan, even a minor fan, I think you'll really appreciate this. It's a very long and detailed documentary. The full three episodes is almost nine hours long. But it really puts you in their headspace, really at a moment where the band is starting to dissolve. So really fascinating to see the dynamic between the different members and a lot of great music here as well. And really just some insight into the creative process. It's very easy to think this music just comes fully formed out of geniuses' minds. But actually, it's pretty painstaking. Making anything is pretty painstaking. Even making this podcast, actually, is pretty time-consuming when you consider it's really just conversations, right? But it's actually more effort than you expect. And it's good to see something that really appreciates that process. The usual calls to action, make sure you subscribe if you want to know when new episodes are available. Some recent episodes, I, we continue to recap the Dexter New Blood TV show. There's a new episode just tomorrow, or today, I guess, when I'll be posting this. And that recap should be coming out shortly. You may have caught over the weekend, I released a Marvel review roundup, and I'll be having another follow-up Marvel conversation with some friends, digging into Spider-Man, and also discussing the new Matrix movie, which I saw and enjoyed, but I have a feeling it will be very divisive, so I can't wait to have this conversation and feel out some other Matrix fans. It's hard to be a Matrix fan considering it's really that one great movie, right? That first one. But I did like this, probably the best of the sequels, my mini review, but we'll have much, much to talk about there in that film as well. Available right now on HBO Max and in theaters as well. That conversation will also hopefully be dropping this week. Maybe it'll be not until after the New Year's holiday, considering everyone's schedules, but soon. As always, reach out to me, need some introduction at gmail.com if you have any feedback. And of course, if you think this conversation will be interesting to any of your friends and family, please let them know about us. It's how we grow our audience primarily from you recommending us to your friends and family. So thanks for listening in. I hope you're having a great holiday weekend and let's get to the conversation. We're talking about 14 songs we hope to get. I've got a feeling. How many have we already recorded good enough? No. None of us has had the idea of what the show's going to be. I've got a feeling. I would dig to play on stage, you know. Nobody else wants to do a show. I think we've got a bit shy. Oh, no! Yeah! Yeah! What could it be? Paul, something in the way she moves. Hmm? What attracted me at all? Just say whatever comes in the head each time attracts me like a cauliflower until you get the word, you know. I mean, I have so many things to say. I mean, I'm a big fan of the Beatles. Obviously, I like their music. I have, don't really know their career that well, like other than like the actual albums yeah, and some general biographical information around that. There's some things I discovered because, you know, and so I'm curious to get your feedback on it, given you're a super fan, I think, than I am. But there's so many things I thought about in the show itself. I'm going to actually give you a little technical background on the, the making of the show, uh, the film. And I think it's kind of like interesting context for the film itself. First of all, this is made by Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, etc. Oh, yeah. He's always a special effects innovator. He's been throughout his career. And a few years back, he did this documentary, which was very successful. And I think it got an Academy Award nomination also called They Shall Not Grow Old. Did you hear about this? I have not. No. So what he did was they used artificial intelligence to get eight millimeter films. And some of it is like four millimeter film, four and eight millimeter film from World War One, And they used AI and basically blow it up to high definition as the cameras covering this very small area, you know, like kind of following these men walking through the fields and stuff, you know, obviously in the background, you're getting additional detail. 
So the AI is using that to create the backdrops to these scenes. So these people are being like reconstructed in this space. And that documentary, not only was it, they blew this up to high definition, they showed it in IMAX in 3D. And then they have interviews with these actual people. They found the people in the footage and they found interviews with them. Obviously they're not alive now, this is World War I, mm-hmm. but they found like, you know, BBC docu- um, interviews and stuff with them. They took all those interviews. So as you're seeing these people like making campfires or whatever, you hear their voices from like 1950s, 60s, mm. re- retelling their experience of World War One, right? Wow. So it was pretty amazing, you know, that technology. So he's used the same technology here. So I'll actually include it here uh, when I post this, but there's a short YouTube video where he shows what they did. So they took the original 16 millimeter footage and you don't even think about this when you're watching it, blow it up to like a high definition, like a 4k representation. Mm. But what's so crazy about that is taking all this footage that they have available. They're not just taking the footage and blowing it up. They're basically creating a 3d room with them inside of it. So now like when they're having conversations, they can like move the camera to like George's face as John is talking because they've reconstructed the whole room in this like space. Right. Wow. The other amazing thing they did was they used the AI as well to take this single, you know, recording, which is one, a mono track that the they've, that they've captured. And what they did was they taught the computer to basically say, this is a human voice. This is John's voice. This is Ringo's voice. This is what a guitar sounds like. This is, and they literally were able to pull that apart into individual tracks. So some of the crazy things they did here is you probably noticed when you watched that first episode that there's times when they're like, wait a second, you're recording us and you see them strumming their guitars. They're basically fighting with each other and playing their instruments at the same time because they don't want the documentarians to hear what they're saying. And that is like crystal clear now because they stripped out all the other noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I definitely caught my eye at first was like, okay, this is super sharp. Right. So there was some upscaling they had to have done. Right. It's not 1969 film quality, like for like sports or something like that. When right. that first started going into high definition, it was like, whoa, this is too much. You know what I mean? And you're right. seeing almost right. too much detail and then like the contrast yeah. was too crazy. And um, I think th- this struck a good balance. It didn't hit that yep. weird, like uncanny valley. I think the reason it's not so jarring when you watch it is when you're seeing it, I don't think he tried to make it look like a high resolution, digitally shot Avengers movie today, for example. I think what they were trying to go for, the style he went with, it, it looks like help or something, right? It looks like something that was shot in 35 millimeter back in the 60s. So it's like they upscaled it that much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's fascinating about it to me is that he's making a lot of choices, but it's all to serve the experience that you are there in the room with them, right? Yeah. So in a way, for me, this is maybe the most interesting thing that comes out of this is on the one hand, it's someone manipulating the footage incredibly to give you the sense of intimacy that you're in the room hanging out with these guys. And then the question becomes how much of this is true, but then how much of it is a manipulation, right? Is like a version of truth. But then again, any documentary is a version of truth, yeah, right? Yeah. But but I think it's still pretty incredible that you know you think about this technology being used in a way to maybe this is fake news in other words, right? Like this, you know, right. But, uh, like how much of this is uh, uh, true or, or manipulation? I think he's a, a true fan. So I think he's trying to make it as pure as possible, but it's almost like it's so well done in its manipulation that you're not even aware that you're being manipulate, manipulated, right? Yeah, but it's, it's pretty like the, interesting. the prestige. Right, yeah. right, exactly. I, w- I was listening to it just in like decent speakers, but they're, they did get stereo separation on stuff. So you yeah. can kind of hear, oh, Ringo's over like behind John's left shoulder. 
you know, and you got that sense of placement. So it's fascinating to figure out, to learn how they did that. Super entertaining so far, even though, you know, I had read a lot of uh, the reactions and stuff already and people like, how did they get that done when they're just like fiddling, farting around like the entire time? But I thought like, yeah, that's in my experience anyways, and not them on par with any of the Beatles or anything like that. But a lot of that just rings true for like a creative process when you're really starting from nothing. You know, it's rare that you'll come in to a situation like that and then four different people involved in the dynamic there to just hit the ground running with the 14 ideas or songs that they wanted to get done. So it's rang true to me. Yeah, yeah. One thing that it definitely dispelled, even at the right at the end there, um, when George makes his exit, you know, it it dispelled spoiler alert. No, just kidding. <laughs> it dispelled the um uh you know that it was all bickering and tension and yes. stuff like that. Yeah. Which I think since they actually ended up releasing this, I believe they cut it down to like eighty minutes. And mm-hmm. that was post breakup when it was released any in any yeah. event. And it seemed like it was kind of at that point sort of a throwaway. And, you know, for the fact that it was like never, to my knowledge, I don't think that original was ever like remastered in and of itself or like re-released. The the myth that was busted behind that was like, oh, these guys were just like totally sick of each other. Um, And maybe things take that turn a little bit more going forward, but it seemed to me that they still had fun on on like a friendly level. I like the way they did the intro too just to show like how insanely meteoric their rise was yep in such yep. a compressed time frame you know they're the cute you know like a boy band type of thing it was great that they mentioned um you know that it wasn't just like some prefab fab four mm-hmm. they were tw- childhood buddies um, mm-hmm. and they played their asses off for a number of years before even getting that first record label, you know, the whole Germany, the whole Hamburg period playing eight shows a night. So they had, they had chops and it seems like they're almost like so legendary and there's so much kind of reverence for them. Now we can tend to think that they're just naturally talented, which is obviously the case, but I like how it shows how much work actually went into the beginning of it and throughout. Um, And, you know, putting out that amount of records in that short time span, by the time we get to this, who's the oldest? Uh, John, I think, is maybe 29 or 30, not even 30, maybe 30 or thereabouts. That's just insane. And, like, I don't have the... Um, whole timeline of what they were doing the year prior um 68 but it was it was a huge it was a hugely busy year for them as well um i think that was like the magical mystery tour um all you need is love single like they did a bunch of stuff just before they started this in january hey jude had just come out before this right that's why that's what the inspiration for for this uh project yeah yeah that was cool too because i i remembered more the all you need is love was like one of the first universally broadcast uh television events which was kind of cool yeah they were going full steam ahead for you know 
what nine year period essentially yeah dropping multiple albums in some years in the early days especially and just being that in absurdly famous <laughs> and also dealing with the crazy backlash you know with john's uh jesus comment all that is so intense the only kind of blueprint maybe they could see was like an elvis figure yeah but he was like one guy which in some cases i guess probably made it worse for elvis that he couldn't diffuse some of that that mania around him to three other people all the same i mean that amount of work, that high quality, um, that amount of fame, I could definitely see how you'd kind of get tired of each other. One thing, too, that was, it was an ambitious mistake, but I think really when they, the whole Apple Corp venture, you know, I get why they did it as far as more creative control, owning masters, branching out into other stuff. It drew their attention away from making music as the Beatles and all of a sudden, you know, now they're in all these other meetings. And they seem so uninterested in those conversations, which they, you know, once again, it's very interesting what Jackson's including here in, in that you have these drawn out conversations. It's not only that they're talking about this specific project, which obviously they are concerned with, like, where are you going to perform? Like, when are you guys going to finish these songs? You're like a weekend, you have two songs, right? So these are all realistic, pragmatic things they're asking. But also you have that guy going in, they're talking about, oh, we're going to be publishing, you know, your sheet music and you have to go have dinner with this guy and you have to go. And like, you see that they're just so not interested in that part of the business. So, so to your point, it's just yet another distraction and more work for them, right? That they they, they don't want to be doing. Oh yeah, Matt, uh, I forget the guy's name. Uh, James, um, Dick James, I believe, was the publishing yes. guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I kept saying they were saying Rick James. I was like Rick James. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Dick that James. Been, and, that would have been. That would be that'd be something, yeah. right? <laughs> that conversation was pretty entertaining, and especially when it kind of breaks up and he follows Paul over to the piano. And he's like talking about how in 10 years, you know, it's going to be consistent. And he, Paul's just like uh, glazed over, you know, could not exactly. care any less. Another thing that kind of impression that I had, I don't know if it was George kind of just uh, emoting this to make a point or if it was really genuine. His lack of confidence or seeming lack yeah, of confidence yeah. was something that kind of jumped out to me Yep, more than once in the first episode he's like well most of my songs are slow it'll just be shit if we do this one i don't care if we do this that right, type right. of attitude. But he obviously does care though right it's like yeah he, so i think he was kind of like taking the piss out of himself to just make a yeah. point and kind of reflect what how he feels he's being treated um but it was still kind of weird to weird to see um and the little bit about Clapton, um, when he was talking about Clapton yeah. and really going, like, gushing about him, that was interesting, too, because I'd, I've read that after, I want to say, Rubber Soul, there really were less and less George guitar yeah. moments. He kind of went away from that and pursued more of the Indian-style songs mm -hmm. were his, and, like, the biggest song of his on the White Album, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, is Eric Clapton playing. Clapton, guitar. right. And he yeah. also says he lost he's lost confidence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's pretty decent evidence to point to that, yeah, he kind of started learning sitar. He kind of got away from playing rock and roll guitar, like, on his own. And it was just 
hadn't moved him at the way that it did, uh, you know, in the earlier phase of his career. What do you think about Paul, though? Paul's a little passive aggressive here. It's funny because Paul's actually said this in recent interviews. He says watching it was he was afraid to watch it because he thought he had kind of been a jerk during that recording session. And it made him feel like he wasn't as much of a jerk as he thought. But if I was going to call anyone a jerk specifically in that first episode, by the way, because mm-hmm. I think he's much better later on that when they bring George back, spoiler alert, everybody, yeah. when he brings spo- George back, of course, he comes back. <laughs> you know, they made two more albums, so <laughs> he had to come back. They are much more collaborative with him because they could see his frustration. He, he's criticizing his playing. He goes, don't play the obvious thing or the corny thing. And then John's just saying, just let him play the corny thing. And then, you know, once we get through it, we'll, we'll figure it out. But it's like, it's almost the way he's, saying that you're playing the same thing again. And I think that's when George starts to be like, you know what, <laughs> to that point, when he doesn't show up the next day, they're like, hey, if we need to, we'll bring Clapton. It's, it's like, it's pretty messed up. Yeah, really, the, the box of George, is it? It's them versus John and Paul, when it comes to what they want to do and what they want to play. Yeah. And if you try doing that for a few months, you're going to end up pissed off. Yeah. Um, well, the songwriting, they are our songwriting team, and he's, he's their team. Yes, but John and Paul aren't writing together much anymore, are they, really? Yeah, because it goes on the label that way. (laughs) So, cats and kittens, what are we going to do? Hey, I've just been having some groovy ideas. (laughs) So what's our next move? We split George's instruments. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and, you know, that was my takeaway, too. George just being frustrated, I think, with the general situation, his position in the band, yep. then having this tone taken with him, and then just the impracticalities. Because really, when you look at it, the project timeline is absurd. It really <laughs> exactly. doesn't make any sense. Uh, you, right. Even if you are the, even though they did meet the Beatles, I think in one day. You know what I mean? Right. right. But you know, this isn't then the tie, the multimedia tie-in aspect, all the logistical things. What's his name? Michael Lindsay Hogg, who's a total, total dweeb. (laughs) That guy, uh, you know, I think he's definitely, um, he's almost like a stereotypical kind of like managerial figure. Oh, there's this one, one of the first go arounds about where they're going to perform after they kind of first rebuff like the whole, let's go to friggin uh, Tripoli and play (laughs) in an amphitheater. And he keeps talking about 2000 Arabs and (laughs) friends. Like holding torches. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. There's this one portion where he's like, oh, so what's the most charitable thing someone can do? And not polio. I mean, something else like kids with broken legs. And then he's talking about uh, a hospital and you can see it zooms (laughs) in on John's face and he's like, what the hell is this guy's problem? And then when he mentions orphanages, the daggers from John's eyes turn, he smiles, but that is a toothy sharp tooth grin that was what it was like back then right paul like kind of diverts the conversation he goes oh you know the whole orphanages and hospital thing is kind of like played out or whatever the way he says that it almost sounds like that's like a a standard thing right where you have like a band goes and whatever does a charity you know they do a ball for for some charity or something right yeah so it's it's almost like it seems like it's a, a you know perfunctory thing which is funny for us to think 
back on that, that, you know, you have like the Beatles, right? The Beatles, which of course are still one of the most famous bands in the world, even to this very day. But to think that at the time it was like, because this is just the machine that people are like, yeah, that's what these bands do, right? You go and you do like a little charity ball or something, right? Yeah. And, but I also think that the, the spectacle of it is funny because they're talking about those two things at the same time. So on the one hand, they're saying, this is the Beatles. We're going to have this, you know, like a uh, live at Red Rocks type moment, right? <laughs> and then on the other hand, they're like saying like, or an orphanage maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then the, you know, what they kind of ended up happening, which is alluded to a little bit, kind of like type of like viral marketing or guerrilla marketing that r has really been more in the mainstream over the last 20 years when uh, Paul's talking about, well, we go someplace that we're not supposed to be, yep. we trespass, we get arrested yep. and that'll be the, that'll be the thing. And, you know, you flash forward to what was it, the, uh, one of the Democratic National Conventions, I think, maybe in 2008, were like Rage Against the Machine did something similar. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so it was interesting that that was like an idea, which eventually is kind of what they did without the direct involvement, without the danger of them getting actually hauled off to prison by virtue of being um, out, out of reach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and to me, uh, one of the other interesting things which again, I don't know how much this changes, but it really dispelled the whole um, negative influence that Yoko had over the proceedings. Right. It seemed perfectly cordial. Although what the hell is she doing there, man? Like, it, it, I mean, <laughs> but that was after George left and they were like, what the hell are we doing here? You know what right, I mean? Right, it wasn't yeah. like she was like, okay, guys, like step aside. Like I'm going to take my moment to shine. That was like right, a right. off moment. I think everyone was just, uh, okay, this is kind of weird. Oh, I didn't even I didn't even mean on the production part of it, which I thought was fun, like, you know, them just goofing around. And I mean, George, I mean, uh, Paul seems to be having fun, you know, jamming away, like feedbacking over her vocals and stuff. Right. So, I mean, I think they're just goofing around for me from the very beginning where I'm like, what the hell is Yoko doing here was just the fact that it's like, you know, they're improvising or whatever else. And she's just sitting there like reading a newspaper or something. It's just like, what the hell? Is, yeah, it's kind of what the hell is going on? It's kind of awkward. But like, it's weird. Like I said, it didn't it didn't seem like anyone else really gave a crap you know what i mean well, i don't think that was the thing that was the straw that broke the camel's back although they you know supposedly you know uh she's even more present in like the abbey road uh recording sessions at, and then you know that became more problematic at some point point. and i mean paul brings it up i don't know if it's in the first episode or the second episode where he as is having a side conversation about the whole yoko thing i think when john's not there I, I, it might have been still in the first episode but yeah. maybe it's at the beginning of the as second they're one they're leaving i think he goes oh couple of the year oh it was more than that like john starts showing up later and later and maybe this is at the beginning of the second episode. I think so. But basically, Paul is there by himself. And then Ringo shows up eventually. And Paul is just like playing the piano and, you know, BSing with the guys around there. You know, he starts talking about how John and Yoko are trying to, you know, they're doing some kind of process where they need to be as close to each other at all times to like kind of, you know, I guess th there's some kind of experiment they're running on their relationship. And that's why she's just there wherever he is. She's within a few feet of him at all times. But, uh, but yeah, to your point, she doesn't seem to throw out their ideas or take John's side when he's arguing with Paul. That doesn't happen at all. Right. She's just there. <laughs> yeah. She's just like, just like in his side pocket, like the whole time. <laughs> exactly. The whole time. Right. So it's kind of funny because like <laughs> Spinal Tap definitely got a lot of inspiration from, you know, the original, whatever they saw of the original, right. which I'm sure those guys did. I mean, that's more contemporary to them, but she's definitely not like Michael McKean's girlfriend. 
Final Tap, who's designing costumes based on their, you know, their zodiac signs. It was kind of odd, but then Linda was there too. Um, yeah, Linda shows up eventually. Yep. You know, and Ringo, and then Ringo's wife shows up too at, at yeah. some point. But so that was good because I didn't want to go in and like, oh wow, she was like, you know, putting her foot down and like changing lyrics and stuff. It was just like, nah, she's just kind of like chilling. It the, another funny thing right at the beginning though, with I think it was the first day where um there's the Hari Krishna guy. Yeah. We just sit he, with George. That's, that's yeah. almost weirder. He's like yes. sitting 20 yeah. feet away and he's just like got his little, I don't know what he's doing in his bag there. And uh, I think it's John who says, what's with the little old man? <laughs> that was, that was. <laughs> and that there's was two of them later on. There's two of them there. So oh, it's, so, okay. <laughs> he left and found his, uh, found another one, I guess. But yeah, Paul, he was trying a bit too hard, I think. And to, to control, he was squeezing too much and it was coming out of his, out of his grasp, I think. Yeah. initially and what was kind of really interesting was i think everyone was in agreement really lamented the fact that um you know brian epstein had died yes that's what i was going to circle and, back to was that epstein dying was a huge problem for them because he was the one who kind of cracked the whip and uh, kept them in line they wanted to goof around and play around and be goofballs epstein was the one who kept them in line because he knew them since they were teenagers and i feel like um you know even though you have george martin being like uh especially when they get back to the abbey road studios where he's like are we going to record today you know other than that little nudging here and there and they do record a lot when they get to abbey road they start recording right away so they a lot of it had to do with them just not being comfortable with the space or maybe the pressure of having to do this live show or whatever that was happening but once they get back to the studio they start recording instantly right so it's much more comfortable for them other than George being like, all right, all right, all right, stop goofing around. We have to put something on tape. I think Epstein was the one, you know, they call it out in that first episode and even more so in the second episode where I think Paul is talking about it, saying like, you know, he's the one who told them, you're going to change your look. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And like basically allowed them to be the goofballs that they were. And he took care of the more serious stuff and they lost that. Right. And they couldn't do that part of it. And there was no one to like be their therapist when they were having these problems. Right? Yeah. I imagine that Epstein would be the guy talking with Dick James about buying this catalog of songs. Right. And, right. you know, the other guys wouldn't be bothered with it. You know, that's why he, uh, you know, Lennon uh, loved him. But then after the fact, he said some detrimental things about it when he kind of saw the way that deals had been cut after the fact, because he didn't realize like some of those merchandising deals and stuff like that, how Epstein had negotiated those because they didn't see the business side of things. Right. Yeah. But uh, but Lennon, for example, has openly said that he uh, had a more negative opinion of Epstein. A lot of things about Epstein, they didn't realize that he was doing from a business standpoint and maybe screwed him up on some of these deals and things. On the other hand, he also said we would never have been as big as we were if it hadn't been for him. Right. So it's like he it's a double edged sword with that whole relationship. Not to cut too much slack for for Epstein, but I think he was pretty down the line as far as the way management artist relationships right. traditionally had been and probably a little bit more favorable to and protective of those guys than a lot of other music managers for other other folks. But yeah, I think combining the two things at the beginning that also jumped out is that yeah, they walk in and this you know, it's TV soundstage. It's not made for what they're trying to do. So you have that kind of uncomfortability and unfamiliarity magnified by now they're on camera. I mean, one yep. of the first things is, oh, you want us to turn down the amps because you couldn't hear our conversation, which goes to what you're saying, what they would do later on is right. play and then talk <laughs> to each other. It's like, you know, watching like a football coach with the, uh, you know, <laughs> exactly. trying to yell at his quarterback with the playbook over his face. I guess uh, John seemed to be having having a, the most fun. He seemed the most laid back out of everybody and kind of interesting at times how he was like 
more of a mediator than I think mm-hmm. people would ascribe to him. He, he's kind of characterized as like the angry, rebellious yep. dude that, you know, would get to a fist fight at the drop of a hat, which on the one hand is kind of true. Mm-hmm. But in this setting, there are more than a couple times where he was like definitely trying to defuse the situation yep, and kind of get people on the same page. Like you were saying, when he's trying to gently tell Paul, to like, lay off George yep. for a minute. And I think the thing that snapped with George, too, that moment right before he left, Paul's talking with John about when to hit the cord on get back. Yep. And then not like minutes later, I don't know if there, how much time, if there was an edit in there, but I don't really think there was. He turns to George and says, don't, don't do that. He's like, what? You just said that was the thing that we we're doing. And right. like, so that wishy-washiness coupled with him trying to be controlling, I think was yep. what bit Paul. Um, cause he wanted to have these fully formed ideas and control over that, but that's not the process that's going to go on in that type of situation that they put themselves into. Ringo is just the coolest. I think we can all (laughs) agree on that. There's a one little snippet where I think Linda says, I feel most relaxed around Ringo. Is the director, I think, yeah, he's like saying, I love Ringo. And uh, she's like, yeah, he's like my favorite. He's my favorite too. Yeah. So I think that's that was the consensus basically around the world. <laughs> right. Glenn John seemed pretty cool as a producer. It was funny because Paul kind of ribbed on him. Oh, so you're arranging uh, the song now uh, when they're <laughs> right. talking about Let It Be uh, when he was running through that song. George Martin, his absence was conspicuous. I'm glad to hear that once we get back into Abbey Road, we'll get to see a little bit more how he worked. Maybe it's more prevalent later, or maybe they just chose not to shoot when he was there. To your point, you don't see George doing, George Martin, that is, whatever he was doing from a production standpoint. You see him walk in every once in a while. And really, like all you hear him doing is just listening in on what they're saying. And he goes, maybe you try it that way. Maybe you try it that way. And then being like, are we going to record today? That's about the extent of it. As soon as they finish recording, they walk immediately into the recording studio. You know, they they bust, what's his name? Uh, Glenn's... Uh, chops again he's like dropping in and out like the guitar solo and stuff and they're like oh you're arranging now he goes i can put it on if you want to hear it they're like no 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 go ahead do what you're doing like but they're like busting his chops for him making editorial choices you know what i mean hmm. so it's uh, it's pretty funny to, to see how that plays out but like to your point even then they're having this banter with him and george martin is either there just there with his arms folded listening or he's not even in the room it seems to be at the time or they're not choosing to show him so he's not really an important character in this documentary and once again this is a documentary that what what did they shoot at the time and then what was selectively edited right. you know maybe that's not the dynamic they're they're focusing on here but that's what i thought was interesting like to to, to go back to that for me i was watching this documentary and uh, first of all i'm thinking this is way too long <laughs> <laughs> this is like, you know, this is Peter Jackson problems all over it because it's like everything's way too goddamn long. So I start watching it. And at first I'm like, this is all dragging on too long. And then I start thinking to myself, wait a second, now that I'm kind of just hanging out with these guys, that there's value in that. You start seeing their characters developing. Like you said, George is a little timid. John and Paul, they're 16 and 17, right? Yeah, yeah. And George is only 13 when they get together, right? So think about it. He's, he's like a baby. You know, he's like 23 years old, 24 years old when this thing's happening. Hmm. Maybe that's why he's a little more timid. I think another reason there's that intimidation is that John and Paul have this like love affair, right? Like just like you know, we've heard for decades that they are jamming with each other and that's all they really want to do. Like they just want to make each other laugh and they want to just write these songs together. And everybody, even Ringo, and George are just on the sidelines, right? And I think that is 
of frustration for George. I find that as I'm watching this documentary, I'm thinking to myself, they're shooting down George's songs, by the way, like all things will pass that, you know, obviously ends up on his album. And when that album comes out, it's a triple album. It's like he had so many pent up songs, right? He had so many songs he wanted to explode out. <laughs> that brings me to another really cool thing. Um, hearing these early versions, there's a, a few of them that yes. had jumped yep. out. If When they did that full run through of All Things Must Pass, I'm like, dang, that would have been an awesome Beatles song. Right. It would have been, right. you know, it would have had a different. And they had no interest in it. They really were like, Paul was just like, we'll just listen to this. And they really did not feel like they yeah. even wanted to record it. But know? even the half-assed version with their harmonies on it. Yeah, like, still good. That would have been really totally. cool. Give Me Some Truth, yep. uh, which, you know, later appeared on a Lennon uh, solo album. I had no idea that, because that to me, there's a really, to that, that song and that lyric is a really Lennon driven song, which I think it was even in the early stage, but I had no idea that Paul McCartney had any involvement right. in writing that. And then hearing, um, you know, just a little brief thing of Paul on the piano doing Another Day, which is one of right. his better solo. Yep. Uh, so that was really interesting to see. Yeah, the jamming and all that stuff is fun. Like, and it's been said to death about this, but it's like, oh, they're just guys being guys. You know what I mean? Yep. But that's kind of the thing that's cool. It does really ground them more um, than just being like some hagiography hey, about, hey, how great the Beatles are. Exactly. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, yeah, and, and that's what another thing that I kind of appreciated about what he did here uh, once I got you know, past my barrier of seeing this a traditional documentary of like this happened and this happened. When you start saying they're like, why are we spending hours and hours watching them, literally hours watching them figure out, let it be, or, uh, you know, it takes almost, it takes over an hour of them messing around with get back. And then they still don't really figure it out for another whole episode of the show, which is another two or three hours of them, you hearing them jamming these songs and goofing around. I mean, wait till you see episode two, where they literally record two of us with like, you know, in different accents, like over and over and over again. And it's just them goofing around, right? It's actually very funny. But at the same time, the value I think in that is, and maybe start thinking about how difficult to your point earlier, how difficult it is to make anything, you know, like the way he like makes up, get back on, you know, by just jamming away on the guitar and then Ringo starts playing the drums and it's almost like how it just emerges from goofing around. So it makes you think about like how hard it is to make anything. And then at the same time, it also made me think about these people who are in that room, hearing them play the same thing 400, 500 times. Like, even if it's the Beatles making their next great album, how in that moment, you must feel like, I don't even know if this is going to be any good. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, I yeah. think that and I, I, anyone who's ever tried to do anything creative, I, I know you do music and I've tried to make, you know, films and, and write stuff. So it's like, you, when you're doing it, like you don't even know if it's going to be any good. You're just trying to get it done because it's like just to get it all finished already. You know? Yeah, yeah, to get get whatever um, to to try and draw inspiration out again, especially with a crazy timeline that you're bound to. It's just um, it's massively difficult, I think, for anybody. I did find it also interesting, which you know how much they would get the melody yeah. well before the lyric. It yeah. seemed in a lot of cases because there's so much of it just like da 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 you know no no real words it's all like just scatting and vocalizing or whatever yep. getting that structure and and then being able to to fit words in there uh, that that makes sense to go to the title of this get back I'm super glad they got away from trying to do an Enoch Powell anti national <laughs> song because. Yes. 
yeah. that was not going in the right direction at <laughs> all. Um, you know, it kind of reminded me of um, Oki from Muskogee, Merle Haggard, I believe. Um, but that's a song, you know, that today lives on supremely misunderstood what the lyrics are, where it's like talking about the situation. It's not satirical enough to register for most people. If they went ahead with, you know, the no Pakistanis and Puerto Ricans, all that would have done was gotten co-opted by the Enoch Powell supporters. The, the, The sarcasm and the dismissal likely would not have registered, given the lyrics that we know were comprising that version. So I'm glad they got off that. And I'm curious to see how that actually, how they evolve out of that. If anyone actually says, man, maybe this isn't going to sound right, or maybe it won't be well received, or the message will be kind of missed. I knew that uh, that was kind of like the origins of that, but to actually see it. And in real time, they're reacting, you know, I liked how they were juxtaposing all the, um, you know, contemporary news clips. Right. You know, describing what they're talking about, which makes it make more sense. If you didn't right. have like that context, context, even, yep. even if you just gave the explanation, but didn't provide that additional like media, that would come off worse too. You know what I mean? I think if you're just like, really, that's how they're going to attack this problem. I would say uh, one of the MVPs also of this is Mal Evans. He was the guy transcribing a lot of the lyrics yes. as they were working yep. through things. Um, yep. He was kind of like, I don't want to say a fixer, but he was kind of like a an assistant to everyone in the band yep. and just seemed like a really solid dude. And like one of the funniest moments is just the look on his face when he's playing the hammer in, <laughs> in, Maxwell, in for Maxwell. It's just, <laughs> that's priceless. So uh, big up to Mal Evans. He was, he was a very cool guy, apparently. Here's another realization I came to that maybe you knew about, but I didn't realize, but just speaking to the incredible clip that they were traveling at in their careers, like you said, just those seven canonical albums, or I guess at that point they were up to six still, but you know, with all the other stuff with the Magical Mystery Tour and some of these other compilations and stuff, and just the singles, they were popping out all the time. But on top of all of that, because I'm like, wait a second, why are they playing Maxwell Silver Hammer? In my mind, of course, Abbey Road comes before Let It Be. Maybe they're practicing them because they might perform them because they're relatively recent. And then they're like, no, they're still working at the lyrics. So I'm like, hold on a second. So I had to go to my Wikipedia article and I'm like, so wait a second, they recorded this in January and then they abandoned the entire album and then they record Abbey Road like later that year. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, you know, they're they're fracturing at this whole entire time, already started fracturing during the White Album from what you overhear in these conversations, especially in episode two, by the way, you haven't gotten there yet, but they kind of lay it out that they go and talk to to George and it doesn't go well, but we don't have a recording of it. Mm. But then this is pretty funny. They go to talk. Paul and John need to talk things out. So they're like, we're going to go to the commissary and we're going to go talk. And then in in the, you know, the subtitles on the screen, it says that they went to the commissary for privacy so they could have a private conversation. It was literally they know that the filmmakers had put microphones in the vase in the table they're at. So we hear their entire conversation. Oh God. And you basically they all lay it out. And to your point, all the things you're saying, John is like telling Paul, you're you're arranging in real time, you have things in your head. You're trying to force people to play what's inside your head and you're not letting George express himself. Pretty funny because it's like, you know, they're having a conversation, intimate conversation that basically no one else was supposed to hear, but we get to hear it. So oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Okay. Because you're a friend, but how you play won't be like you want it to play. And that's what we do. And that's what you do today. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you what to play. It's the, 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 it
on the occasion. Just for even to say, look, I'm not going to say anything about the song because it's pretty difficult. I'm going to really try now. You know, I've always done the numbers like that. Now, the only regret about the past numbers is when, because I've been so bright, I've allowed you to take it somewhere where I didn't want. Yeah. And then that my only chance was to let George take over or interest George in the year. If you give me all the suggestions, let me reject them and think they want to like this way we'll write it. Yeah. Same goes for the arrangement. I don't want it to... Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And just to kind of see them at their most uh, intimate, you know? Oh, yeah. So, I, you know, just the chronology of it, like, you know, they're, 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 you see that all these things are breaking apart. They, you know, he references in that conversation what started happening in the White Album, where he says, we're not playing like a band anymore. We're making songs, and we're, you know, which is what the White Album was. My personal opinion, I know people love the White Album. For me, I think the White Album is one of their worst albums because I think it's really bloated at two records and it has great songs on it. But I feel like there's a bunch of John Lennon songs. And they don't sound like Paul is contributing that much. And then there's a bunch of Paul songs that honestly, those Paul songs, they sound like some of the Paul stuff I don't like later on in his career. And then there's George stuff, which I like some of George's songs on there, but they don't sound like Beatles music either. Right. That sounds like George's. That just sounds like more outtakes from George's upcoming album. Right? Yeah. So, and for me, I like that Abbey Road, really, they feel more cohesive as an album, I feel. It. But anyway, my point was, I just find it fascinating that they went and recorded Abbey Road after this session, and uh, they just had went up with a whole other album, another classic album, <laughs> almost it, almost simultaneously. It's, it's pretty in, insane. That, yeah, the, the, yeah I, think they, I think, like you said, put this in the can pretty much. Yeah. And it wasn't, it was like a couple months later, they started in yeah. on Abbey Road. Yeah, like in the summer. I mean, in the summer, I think they finished recording in the summer. So it's like, you know, like you said, a couple months later, they're they're yeah. back at it doing Abbey Road. So in Abbey Road, Abbey Road, they build the studio. The studio they use is like basically in the next episode when they move into Abbey Road, they don't have equipment there and they have to like build the whole studio like overnight. <laughs> you know? And uh, and that's why, you know, that Abbey Road is the first album they fully make there <laughs> and the last one pretty much. too. Hmm. Yeah, it was it was really, um really well done. I am looking forward to to finishing it off. Um and yeah, I would say, um, yeah, just like you said, it, it, I was like, geez, this is two hours and 22 minutes. Um, next one, the next episode is three hours long, my friend. Well, I mean, <laughs> the, the cool thing was, even though I did watch it, watch it in kind of two separate sections, overall, it didn't drag for me because right. I just had a lot of fun, like you said, just watching their, it, their dynamics getting to see like behind the scenes yep. of how they um, how they interact with each other and everything like that. Even though it's um, super long, like Peter Jackson's want to do, I thought the pacing wasn't, wasn't terrible. I think one thing that helped is always referring back to the calendar and crossing yes. off the days. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you at least get a sense of like, all right, where are we? Because if, right. if you didn't have that kind of demarcation, like you know, in your face, then it would be like, is this the same day? I mean, like, right, exactly. He's wearing a fur coat. Okay, it's got to be a different day. You know, <laughs> so um, they all had fur coats one day. Yeah. And they're <laughs> those they're crazy. Um, those outfits are bonkers, man. Like they are so there's so many things that I appreciated in the documentary, just that type of stuff, just like the crazy style of the time. And, you know, just the, it's just so funny. Yeah. But to your point about the quality of the film, I was literally watching it and I went through all these experiences of, is this too long? And I'm like, yes, it's too long. Then I changed my mind and I'm like, no, because I honestly feel 
at the end of that, it's like, you feel like, you know, these people, like you have so much time spent with them that you start to see their personalities and you get a feel for them as actual people, not as like icons, but as like actual people. So I think there's a lot of value in that. And then I, but then I start saying, okay, even then it's only valuable as a piece of art at all, because you know who the Beatles are, because you know what songs are going to be made here. Right. Oh yeah. And then I started, so then I started turning the other way going like, well, maybe this isn't a good documentary because even though I appreciate it, actually, to your point, I don't feel it's boring, even as long as it is. I'm like, I, I literally am like, I have to turn this off because it's getting so late, but it's not that I was bored. What was happening? It was just like, I can't believe there's two more hours of this. How can I keep this thing going? Right. But I was never bored. But then I'm thinking, but is that valuable if I wasn't a Beatles fan? But then I started coming around that again, going like, no, this is about the creative process. It's about the boring, tedious, terrible creative process that basically making something requires this much tedium and, and, and the effort. And that's the point of it, right? Like you have to hear them get it wrong 15 times and get it right once to appreciate that fact. It's not like they didn't just walk into the studio, you know, and 10 days later, they're like, we made this album. We are geniuses, right? It's like, no, it's like this painful process yeah, they, <laughs> with people storming out of the studio and all this. And this is what comes out of it. This is how it works. And right? it, yeah. They clearly didn't know what they're doing like 80% exactly. of the time at the beginning. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know, it is one of those things. There's such cultural touchstones. One, it's like you have a massive built in audience that you're working with Two, basically everyone knows the Beatles or is somewhat aware of them. So I don't see anyone that's not that doesn't like the Beatles, they wouldn't want to watch. This isn't, this isn't not, your, your intro. This shouldn't be your intro. I would say, yeah, for sure. I think not, if you're not a Beatles fan, this wouldn't be your intro. But I think if you are a Beatles fan, even a marginal Beatles fan, I think you would find this utterly fascinating, right? Just to. It's not going to con convert anybody to Beatles yeah. fandom, but it's such an interesting thing for anyone that is a Beatles fan that I definitely recommend it. Since they thankfully divide. Divide, subdivide each episode by literally crossing a day off the calendar. <laughs> right. You can kind of like pace yourself and, you know, watch the first one in three 40 minute segments or, or whatever. Although I think that there is value, you know, as far as watching it, I think there is value in trying to put yourself into those big blocks of time because I think that that is part of the effect. Like, I, I definitely think you could break it up every single day and just kind of tune back in again if you wanted to. Like you said, like watch just like 20, 30 minute chapters for each one of those days. But I think there's something valuable in seeing that like drawn out two, three days circling around the same tune, not getting it right, feeling oh, yeah. the tedium of that, right? Like seeing like George yawning in the background while they're trying to write get it be, I mean, or get back, I should say, right? And, uh, you know, like, you know, like, you know, seeing the effort required that this, uh, it's kind that, of, that even they're bored with it. Yeah. <laughs> even they're oh, bored yeah. With it, right? There's, um, there's one I think when, um, maybe day three or four, that was the first one where John's like noticeably late. And it's, yeah. um, you know, George, Paul and Ringo and Ringo and George are just sitting there like, <laughs> okay, it's like, you know, way too early for us on a Wednesday or whatever. But to your point, I think there is an interesting trick kind of pulled here where that tedium actually builds tension. Yes. Because mm -hmm. you have a you have a concrete deadline and you're like, yep. how are they going to pull this off now? They've exactly. wasted yep. six days and they've done yep. four songs. And knowing the songs, by the way, especially if you're a Beatles fan, knowing the songs is also a bit of suspense because it's like when they kind of get that next part of the song, you're like, that's going to make it into the final version. Right. Or they like, you know, when they do get back and then they go and they make it like a civil rights anthem. And you're like, oh, no, no, you guys are going the wrong way. You guys are going the wrong way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
I was very thoroughly entertained. You know, I am a huge Beatles fan anyhow, but I think just like you said, there's technically it was really well done, you know, from a sound and visual standpoint. Yeah. I look forward to look forward to finishing it out. Um, for sure. It's really cool to see, see how this, uh, will play out like a portrait of a group that's basically they've conquered the world maybe a couple times over at this point. It's interesting to see just they're normal people and it's a struggle to be creative at times. And it's a struggle to get along with people that you've been in (laughs) close concert contact with for, you know, over a decade at this point in their young lives. And the fact that they're this young and yeah, really amazing stuff. The thing that I find interesting, maybe you can shed some light on this and maybe this is where we wrap it up as well. By the way, I can't wait till you see the second episode, which I have seen. I haven't seen the third one yet. I'm pretty sure that the third episode is going to basically be mostly, there's going to be some lead up, but mostly the concert on the roof at the very end of the second episode. They're actually on the rooftop, like planning it out. But I'm curious to see what you think after the second episode, Billy uh, Preston comes by and plays all those great um, keyboard uh, sequences. He comes back multiple days. And of course, uh, he ends up on almost all those uh, Let It Be tracks, classic tracks. I mean, you see what happens when we're just grooving to the music. The whole place changes. That's all in episode two. But the last question I was going to have for you, what I found very interesting in seeing the dynamic here among the members is, you know, Ringo's very laid back, gets along with everybody. And George obviously has this kind of frustration. But Paul and John, even when they're at odds with each other, they never get nasty with each other. And they're so simpatico. Like I mentioned, wait till you see episode two where they are just committed every single day, just cracking each other up inside the studio. And you see that they still have this real love for each other. So it seems like after the fact, when you see how George collaborated with everybody and Ringo collaborated with everybody, you know, George wrote some of his songs for him and everything when they, when, when they went solo and everything after they broke up. But it seemed like Paul and John, after the breakup, did not really get along. The one thing that seems to really keep the band together is that original... Uh, relationship between the two of them and it seems to be the thing that broke up the most after the band yeah yeah and um there's an incident that happens that really is what kind of precipitates like really accelerates the official dissolution of the beatles and that was paul had a different person in mind to manage them than the rest of the guys did to manage like i think apple music but I believe one of the guys was who makes an appearance here is Neil Aspinall. And then on the other side of it was a guy named uh, Alan Klein. Paul kind of lobbied. Uh, he kind of bucked the group vote. Is that the guy who uh, managed the Rolling Stones? Alan Klein? Yeah, I believe so. That, I think, and that and the fact that um, Paul also started legal action I think those couple things really soured the relationship between him and John. 
um, because John thought that was kind of a breach of their brotherhood, essentially. Mm. Um, and I believe that's really what drove the wedge between them post-Beatles. And you're right, because Ringo plays on... He plays on Plastic Ono Band. Mm -hmm. uh, he plays on All Things Must Pass. Mm -hmm. um, George plays on uh, Imagine. Not the song, but the record. Yeah. Um, Paul plays at the concert, right? The concert for... Uh, for uh, Bangladesh. I believe so. And um, so, yeah, it was weird because you'd have uh, George... Well, Ringo, Ringo contributed and he got songs written by everybody. So he had, right. you know, like Photograph, I'm the Greatest. Photographs of Paul song, I'm the Greatest is a John song. There's another one that George wrote for one of his... Ringo's first or second so second solo album, I think. I believe Ringo is the only one to play with all of them post Beatles, really. And then George really only played with Ringo and John. Right. And John and Paul just never had that reconciliation, which is crazy to think. You know, if you flash forward, and I believe it's in 1980, yeah. um, you know, right before Lennon was murdered, there's that uh, story where. Lauren Michaels wanted to get them on Saturday Night Live and they were kind of back on speaking terms and they legit right. were both in New York and thought about let's just go down to the Saturday Night Live studios and show up, show up. Yeah. and unfortunately I think they were probably a little in the bag or whatever and it was just kind of one of those flights of fancies and they said ah what a, you know not that would be fun but not not today you know and unfortunately, Amazing. never, never you missed opportunity. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what's funny, too, is thinking about it. You know, this is not this is outside the context of the documentary, but it's still something that made me think about is how young they were. I'm shocked at how young people are constantly. You know, we did our Prince uh, retrospective. I felt the same way. I was just like, I can't believe like this guy felt like he was, you know, like an old master and like bringing up all these people behind him. And he was like 28 years old. Right. And it's the same thing here. Watching the Beatles where I'd like at the end of this incredible run. Right. You know, uh, and they're still like some of them are. I mean, uh, George is 20. Five, <laughs> you know, and like, uh, and uh, I think, um, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, when they uh, signed their first contract with Brian Epstein, I think J um, John was 21, and uh, the the other ones had to get their parents' permission to sign because uh, in, in England, apparently, you had to be under 21, you needed your parents' permission, yeah. So, uh, it's it's the whole thing is so bananas. <laughs> and uh, this is the thing I, that shocked me, by the way, is when they're talking about that it was, um, Elvis's uh, 34th birthday and Elvis is going to die just a few years later in, you know, my retrospective, my, my recollection of when he died, you know, I remember the news when Elvis died when I was a kid and I thought it was this really old guy. <laughs> like He's like in his late thirties, early forties. Like it's, it's bananas, right? You know, especially because they started so young, you get that sense. It's like, wow, they've been, been with us forever, but it's only been nine years and yep. nine, yeah, eight, nine years, nine plus 21 is 30 yeah you know nine plus 18 is 27 you know yeah so it, it's pretty crazy and you know yeah i think with musicians and that happens a lot i mean i know that hendrix is in the 27 club right. but you take a look at him playing in his prime you're like this guy's like gotta be he's like 30 right right he's gotta be 30 no 22 right. it's nuts yeah it's nuts. so but the other thing maybe think about how young they were is how crazy once again, in retrospect, because they have that iconic run, it's almost like, and then they were done. And it like, and that was it. They were never going to get back together. But then you think about it, it's like, you know, 1980, let's say they all worked it out, but specifically Paul and uh, John worked it out and they started to record together 
I mean, a band taking like an eight year break is not, <laughs> is not unheard of nowadays at all. Like this yeah. is very common, you know, like the, the Eagles or whoever get back together 10, 15 years later, the Fleetwood Mac, how many times have they broken up and gotten back together? Right. So it's like, uh, it would be totally normal for George's, you know, uh, had a, you know, huge success for a couple of albums. His career had petered off. John had never had like a huge blockbuster post Beatles career, although he had, you know, Imagine and he had, he, he still had hits, but not anything to the level of the Beatles. And, uh, you know, Paul had been a very consistent hit maker, big hit songs, but none of his albums were massively successful, maybe like Band on the Run with Wings. But in general, you know, he was, you know, selling a million records here, a million records there. And they had all had a successful career and they could be like, hey, let's get together and work together again. That easily could have happened. Easily. And everybody would have loved it, right? I mean, they would put out compilations of Beatles stuff in the 80s and 90s, and they would sell like five, eight million copies a piece, right? So, they easily could have gotten back together and done something, you know, unfortunately it wasn't to be. So, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I think about too, in that context is like, okay, the Rolling Stones are technically still <laughs> yeah. together, but how together are you when you put out an album of original material once every 13 years, which <laughs> right. is kind of like how it's been for them over the last, yeah. like, you know, two decades or, you know, three decades, only a couple, like, new actual releases they're still playing shows but it's not like they're not getting into a studio and creatively butting heads anymore they're just going on arena tours and you know having a good time which is what they like to do so it's fun more power to them but it's like yeah it's weird the compressed time frame and uh to like step back and 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 think about it you're like yeah they could have like gotten back together for even just even if it was a one-off you know you know absolutely but and not like that, not like those terrible songs off of the anthology. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they did free as a bird. And what was the other one? Free as a bird and uh, real love. Yes. Which, you know, yeah. yeah I, I like the concept, but the delivery, I think something like that may be able to be pulled off better today, just given technology and audio restoration. Right. But eh, that was that was kind of a downer. Um Oh, new Beatles songs, and you hear it, and like, oh, that's like John's like tape recorder vocal, <laughs> exactly on his piano in like a living room. You know what I mean? I don't know, but it's hard to believe they couldn't have found something better. Like even on like just going to get just seeing these recordings to get back that there's not something in there. And like you said, maybe now we have the ability to clean up some of the audio of the, some of those jams they had because you know you look at like Free as a Bird. You know, first of all, the arrangement around it is so cheesy, but then they're basically just have that one vocal line with him at the piano. And they're like, let's turn this into a whole song. It's it, first of all, this single is just terrible. Hmm. You know, just, it's just a, all, totally off topic. But but uh, to that point, it's like I just listened to them jamming here and they probably had 100 songs that they had half finished back at this, you know, at their prime. Okay. And they could have easily found something, you know, and maybe like you said, maybe just the audio quality is not good enough. It's, it's so funny to think about how cheap recording is now and back then like wait till you see the second episode where they're literally saying like you know when they're goofing off in one of the recordings glenn is saying that he's going to record over it because tape is so expensive you know if we're not using this take i'm going to record over it because you know that the tape is so expensive. it's like when you think about how crazy it is that when they had that imax reissue a few years back of the moonwalk and uh, they had to find like the one pristine copy, like in Australia or something and clean it up for IMAX because NBC, which had the original recordings, the masters had taped over them for the Olympics because they're like, tape was so expensive. They're like, Hey, it's just walking on the moon. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to record the Olympics over it. It'll happen again. 
Uh uh-uh, uh. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten past the Kuiper belt since, but cool, man. Well, that that was a. I think that was a good conversation. I will be seeing you soon. I'll see you on Christmas probably. Yeah. yeah cool. <laughs> All right, man. All right. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Not too many 